this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Hey, kiddos. It's another night, another episode. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that I'm on Patreon where right now I'm doing an experiment where I'm trying to do episodes like this every day. So if you're interested in what you're about to hear, if you enjoy it and you want to hear more, go over to patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall, become a patron. Oh, I got some paper tonight. So you might hear the dramatic sounds of me turning the pages. I have, wow, way more notes than I thought. I wasn't really intending on doing something from notes, but just something happened today and I ended up doing like this brainstorm on paper and uh, the brainstorm, I decided the brainstorm was something I wanted to talk about. So that's why you're going to hear paper noises and the normal sipping from my can of LaCroix noises. Hopefully the... uh, Hopefully the thing that I use to get rid of background noises doesn't get rid of the wonderful sound of that bubbling water. (laughs) That will just sound completely stupid. You ever get those, um, those things that just, they sit in your head and you can't get rid of them and they, they seem insignificant, but then they turn out to be what I, what I call the snag of revolution. No. Revolution is a big word. Sounds so grandiose to say that. But the reason I use that term is because, you know, like revolutions, we tend to think of revolutions as something that happens all at once. But it's never something that happens all at once. It's something that's been building and building over small events over time. And that final event is just like the the last piece. You know, the proverbial straw on the camel's back that breaks it. So to me, that's the snag of revolutions. There's there's just one little thing that grabs onto a part of your brain and your brain can't let go of it because somewhere in your brain, a different part of your brain, perhaps the subconscious, knows that that little thing was the final piece. And so 
you know, like these, there's these games where you're connecting pieces. And then when, when you connect all the pieces, like maybe it's a, like a mist type game or a puzzle game or to get to the next thing, you have to move these objects. And, and oftentimes what they have are these, um, these connect the root. I call, I guess they're called connect the root type puzzles. So it might look like an electrical box and there are three nodes on the left and three nodes on the right. And you have to move all of these square and right angles or curves. Sometimes you have to rotate them around and move them around until they make a line from one of the nodes across to the other side. But whenever you complete one of those things, those type of puzzles, even if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's pretty common in, in completing puzzles and games that the, the whole thing lights up with electricity shooting through it. And I feel like that's what happens with these snags, right? This snag is like the piece turns over and then something is looking and going, okay, okay, well, because of that, then this one turns this way. Almost like a Sudoku, right? You get that one number and you're like, okay, that's a nine. that And that means that's a six. And that means that's a three. And then boom, you've solved the whole puzzle. But it's that one. It's just, it's not that one piece that solves the puzzle. It's that one piece that starts all of the connections. So your brain holds on to this thing because it's like, wait, that's important. But you're, you know, like the conscious part of your brain is like, no, got to take the dog for a walk and I got to put this box in the mail and I need to do this. And in the back of your mind is going, remember that thing, remember that thing, remember that thing, remember that thing. And then all of a sudden when you sit down and you just take a moment and you think about that thing, it connects to something else. And then that 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 connects to something else. And then all of a sudden you, you're sitting with what I have here, which is three pages of words and arrows and circles and Y's and scribbles. But it means something significant because all of a sudden all of these little things, these little pieces that you've been collecting that you didn't know were part of something, or at least that you didn't know were part of something together, are suddenly apparent. They're suddenly apparently a whole. And maybe you don't even know what that that whole is, but you know that all of this stuff is significant together and it does connect. So that snag for me, there's a, a guy on... I don't remember how. Oh, I do remember how. So there's a there's a an email newsletter that I subscribe to called Recommendo. And Recommendo, it's kind of neat. It's just like uh there's three people. I think it's just three people who run it. I can't remember all three of their names. The one of them is Kevin Kelly, who's if you're anything knowledgeable about Silicon Valley. You've heard of Kevin Kelly. He was the founder of Wired Magazine. He's done a lot of other things as well. It's Kevin Kelly, a lady who unfortunately his name I can't remember. And then the only reason I know this guy's name is because I wrote his name down. <laughs> because he's part of this whole puzzle. But his name is Mark Frauenfelder. And he is one of the founders of Boing Boing, 
And Boing Boing is like a, it's a blog. It's a, it's a pretty famous blog, but it's like a blog that almost functions like an online magazine, but like in the old school style. I don't know. It's a, you know, what? they just post stuff that they think is cool. It's not like a news source. At least the last time I looked at it, who knows? Maybe it is now. <laughs> I mean, MTV used to play music. <laughs> Imagine that. Something going on with my voice tonight. I've got this frog in my throat. I, I swear to God, though, I did not have it 10 minutes before I started recording this. So don't know what that is. Hopefully it'll go away because it's driving me nuts. So going back to Recommendo, what Recommendo does is those three pick something every week to share that they find useful, that they recommend. Typically, it happens, it's it's usually tools, whether it's like something physically that they've bought or whether it's a website or web tool that they've run across. And it's usually the, the newsletter ends up being about, I think it's about five items every Sunday. So somebody is at least putting up more than one thing. You know, sometimes maybe it's like three from Kevin Kelly and one from the one of the other two or each of the other two, or sometimes two and two and one, you know, whatever. However, it's not formulaic. And it's interesting because I've found, you know, like the, the kettle that I use to make my tea every day. I got from Recommendo. It was recommended. It was $15 and it's rad. It works great. So I've, I've found a few useful things. Most of the time, it's nothing that I'm interested in, but I like reading what they're discovering. And it's short. You know, it's like a paragraph for each thing. So one of the things, I think it was in this week's issue, Mark Frauenfelder mentioned something about his little alien drawings or little, it's not even, they're creatures. Some of them are aliens, some are monsters, some are other things. He does these little tiny little sketches. They're probably about the about the size of a quarter. And he'll do like a whole page of them so they're in a grid. And it's just really cool. And I, he was, he was, I guess he was saying that he's starting to uh, sell them on Society6 like I did for a little while of some of my designs. So I clicked over and I looked at that. And I'm like, you know, what? I, I like I like this, these little doodles. I like these. wonder if he has an Instagram. I went over, found him on Instagram. Started following him. Cool. Now I have a little bit of art. You know, like that's 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 kind of where I thought it was going to end. But then I don't know if I was looking through the pictures or if I was reading his bio or something. Somehow I found out that he had a newsletter. And he had a newsletter on Substack called The Magnet. So I went over, I said, Well, I'm curious what, you know, because to me, even though I knew he was connected to Recommendo. I didn't know he was connected to Boing Boing yet. I didn't know any of that stuff. So to me, he was just like a a guy that was making art on Instagram. So I was like, I wonder what a guy who makes art on Instagram does in his newsletter. And I went over and I read his newsletter. I didn't realize he's writing something for Boing Boing every day, which props to him for doing that. I love everyday stuff, the everyday challenge, as you know. That's why we're here now. But I read the description of his newsletter, and there was one section. I think it's, is that one sentence? Yeah, I think it's one sentence, one long sentence. 
I didn't realize that at the time I read it that it was revolutionary. It was just part of a paragraph, and I kept going back to it throughout the day. And I think this was a few days ago, so it's just been sticking with me. And today I went back and I I reread it. You know, I, f- I finally acknowledged that snag like I was talking about. So I went back to it and I'm like, well, what is it about that? And then something about the process right there began. This whole interactive graph. You know, I'm saying that right now because I'm sitting in front of my computer where my obsidian the program that I do writing in is, and there's a feature in there called the interactive graph, which looks exactly like what I'm imagining this three pages would look like if I were to graph it out. So here's the sentence, not to keep you in suspense. Here, here is the sentence that snagged, the snag that that sent me reeling. And remember, this is not momentous. I didn't even realize it at the time that it was momentous. Every week in the magnet, I'll write about tips I find useful, things that interest me, what I've learned, interviews, recipes, quotations, and more. I'll also include excerpts from my favorite newsletters. Right? It's it's really, it is two sentences. I realize that now, but the, the main sentence is that first one. Because I think like that, now that I'm reading it to you, I'm realizing that that second sentence also include excerpts from my favorite newsletters. That seems to mitigate some of the impact of the sentence before. So maybe it masked that. And maybe that's why it took a while for me to realize that that sentence, where he starts listing off the things that he would do, it reminded me of something else. It reminded me of... A notebook filled with rants, meditations, medications, book notes, hazy memories, true crime, critical thinking, conversations, obsessions, over-detailed tangents, sloppy philosophy, short fiction, technology, weirdness, and everything else. That is the description of my podcast. And I think when I made that connection, what I realized was... Even though I went and I looked at the magnet, it's cool, but it's not what I was thinking it was when I read this. But what I was thinking it was, was something that I've always, no, I don't want to say I've always wanted to build because that's not true. This, you know, this uh, late night radio thing, this is the thing that I always wanted to build. This is the thing that, I think it's the thing that I wanted to build that I didn't know I wanted to build. The thing that I, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the, you know, the story, you know, the parable, I guess maybe it's a parable of the, the elephant where they take all of the, the people of different religions and they, they blindfold them and they have them go and touch the elephant they ask him to describe the elephant from just what they're touching. You know, one only touches the foot. Another one's only touch. So they, you know, they're only touching the foot. So they describe it kind of like a tree. And the other one's only touching the trunk. So they describe it kind of like a snake. 
And the other one is only touching the ears, so they describe it like a curtain or a drape. And the, actually, it's it's not people of different religion doing it. It's just different people. The comparison with the elephant is with religion, that God or the divine is the elephant. And everybody's just touching one part, and they think that they know the whole thing, but they, they've only really touched one part. So they don't understand the, the entirety. That's what I think this is. Even though like, I haven't fully defined the this in what it is, I will try to explain it. But it's the elephant. And when I say it's the thing I always wanted to build but didn't know I want to build, it's because I was continually grabbing pieces of the elephant and thinking that I was building something like this is my thing, but I was really only it was only the foot or this is my thing. And it was really only the trunk or this is my thing. And it was only the ear. But what I really wanted to build was the elephant. And I didn't know because I couldn't see more of the elephant. I don't want to see I've seen say I've seen the whole elephant, but I've seen more of the elephant. So I'm I'm not sure how to really, you know, this is what I have on here. It's not notes, really. This is this is just scribbled brainstorm. So I'm I'm not really sure how to explain what I'm talking about, except to walk you through the journey of realization here. Okay, so it's just going to be like I and I'm going to mention something and be like, and then that reminded me of this, and that reminded me of this. That's kind of what it's going to be like. But what I'm describing is not just a journey. I'm describing parts of the elephant. I just didn't realize that all of these things that 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 these are all things that interest me, that they were all part of one thing, theoretically. So reading the descriptions of magnet, of the magnet, and rereading the description of my own show. What that reminds me of is is magazines. And I don't mean just like Rolling Stone or a magazine you pick up now. I mean like magazine culture, which is a very different thing because magazine culture, you know, like the New Yorker is a great example of, you know, it's like institutionalized now in the sense that like it's just they're like one of the greats and like we don't see what they're doing as revolutionary anymore. It's like it's a formula that somebody else could copy or whatever, but like really what they were doing and what they're still doing, they've just continued to do it is made, made a magazine about New York culture. And that's why they have short stories in there and why they have cartoons in there and why they have sections about what's going on around town. You know, what's going on in the theater, what's going on in this new hotel. The magazine was more than just something you picked up on paper and read. The magazine was, it was like a, a connection point for culture. It's like they're, they're curating culture around you. If you're a New Yorker and you pick up the magazine called The New Yorker, it can connect you to other things. You know, you can't, oh, the, it, the magazine is not the entirety of the experience. It's just, it's some experiences that are just able to be experienced on the page, you know, like the cartoon or the short story or the political article. Those are the, you know, those are complete on the page, but the, everything else in there 
is telling you about something that you have to experience outside of the magazine. And I'm telling you about this restaurant, but you have to eat there. You know, this reading about this restaurant is not the experience. Going to the restaurant and eating there is the experience. Reading about this new ballet is not the experience. I'm just telling you, you should go to the ballet and see this. So that's what I mean by magazine culture. And that was very, when you had things, there was so many magazines like The New Yorker. And I'm sure they still exist, but most of us don't know about them. But they're these cultural, cultural hubs for each individual place. You know, like the internet kind of, it, it shook all of that up. Because in a way, these magazines and the magazine culture I'm talking about was kind of erased by the internet. Because locality meant less. But when you didn't have, you know, like if you were, if you are, what is the name of that show? Donald Glover has the TV show. It's called, uh, it's called Atlanta. Well, in the, in the show, I think it's even the first episode. There's this hip hop song that he plays over the credits. It might even be like the theme song for the show. It's been a while since I watched the show, so I don't remember. But it's very unique because it doesn't have a chorus. So it's not it's not popular hip hop. So I looked it up like when I first heard it. I'm like, what is this? Because I, I, I thought it was I thought it was good. So I looked it up and it turned out it was an, a local Atlanta rapper. So when he does something like that, you know, on we'll, we'll we'll ignore the fact that it's television because we'll we'll refer to it as streaming because that's the internet, right? That song can all of a sudden sell albums everywhere. So culture becomes this thing that's accessible outside of locality. But before the internet, it was more important to focus on local scenes because if you were going to go anywhere, you had to first conquer the local scene in a sense, especially as a musician, right? Become a local, popular local musician, and then somebody wants to take you on tour with them, or they want you to open for them. Then they want to take you on tour with them. And then you, you start to build your own audience, and you start selling albums, and then you become a national act. The internet cut most of that out, which is good and bad. It's good if you're the artist that you don't have to cut your teeth for so long, you know, that you can, you could be like Justin Bieber, right? Put some songs on YouTube, I think it was, and then boom, you're famous. But at the same time, it loses that local, local flavor and the uniqueness of each place. Everything becomes a bit homogenized, that every city becomes a little bit more like every other city. You know, like right now, you probably would never have an East Coast versus West Coast rap feud. Because uh, is the East Coast and the West Coast, is the hip hop really that different? Not really, because everybody's listening to the same shit. Whereas before, everybody listened to the same shit on, you know, like the, the top level. But there was a huge chunk of stuff that they listened to that was only stuff they knew. You know, like if you go and watch... On Hulu, you watch the first season of 
Wu-Tang Clan. It's the Wu-Tang Chronicle, I think is what the actual show is called. You will see that happening for them. That they will have these tapes, right? They, they just won like one tape, one song. And they'll be walking around their neighborhood and hearing people playing it on their boomboxes. Nobody else in the world's hearing it. Just like not even all of Staten Island, probably just that neighborhood is listening to that song. So that's what, when I say magazine culture, that's what I'm thinking about. Because magazines were these important collectors or curators of the culture happening around. Another, another side of the magazine culture was zines. Which, yes, it is just an abbreviation of the word magazine. But zine and magazine are different things. Zine is like, it's like a, it's mostly a punk rock thing as far as I've experienced it. It's like making your own magazine, except, you know, you're not publishing a magazine. You're just writing some stuff out on paper, some, sometimes like notebook paper, which Sharpies was a lot of the punk rock ones were done with Sharpies. They'd have art and they'd have writing and they'd have like song lyrics in it and stuff like that. And then they'd go down to, to go down to Kinko's or whatever Xerox place they had and they'd copy a bunch of them and they'd sell them or give them out. That was zine culture. People try to try, try to bring it back continually. Actually, my, my friend Colin likes to create zines. Uh, my other friend Eric used to create zines. Zine culture was very, it was, it's like making a mixtape for people. Instead of buying them a tape, you, you make them a mixtape. And the more I started thinking about those things, the more I started realizing how connected this was to some of the other things that I've been talking about and I've been thinking about for like the last couple years. So you had the magazines, magazine culture, you had zines, something obviously that inspired this, late night radio, late, late night talk radio. Public access television. I've had this idea of public access television in my head. I don't even know if I watched public access television when I was younger, but just the the knowledge that it existed burned something into my head. And something else I talked about when talking about this, the idea of the classic blogs. You know, back in the day when the blogs weren't dedicated to one topic, it was dedicated to the reader or the writer. And the writer would jump topics as they saw fit. That this blog might talk about politics, also might talk about jazz, and also might talk about fishing. I don't know why I use fishing as an example so much. I've only been fishing once in my life, and it was disastrous. <laughs> so one, one, one thing I discovered not too long ago was a a streaming service called Night Flight. And I have no idea how I found it. But Night Flight, essentially, it's essentially the original of something that I knew of, but I was just a little too young to know what Night Flight. I knew what Night Flight became. So there was a cable channel back in the day, probably still exists, called USA, USA Network. And late at night, USA used to have a show called USA Up All Night. And it was kind of a more adult show. 
not as in dirty or, you know, like they still had to follow the airwaves. You know, it was, it was cable, so they could maybe be a little risky, risque, a little more risque. They could make dirty jokes and stuff like that. Uh, one of the hosts was Gilbert Godfrey, and then later it was this woman named Rhonda Shear. I would watch it every once in a while, but I was I was still was pretty young. We're talking about the late 80s, so I didn't get most of it. You know, I was not an adult. But that show is was originally Night Flight. What Night Flight, essentially in Night Flight, got changed by people at the network, you know, the people with the money that changed the show. And then it became USA Up All Night. So Night Flight is a streaming service that is not only, it's not just uh, the old episodes of Night Flight. There's actually not that many of the old episodes of the original Night Flight on there. But it is a streaming service dedicated to the original ideology of Night Flight. And the original ideology of Night Flight was a TV magazine. Now, what what part of this entailed was playing music videos. They, I think technically, they started before MTV. But the difference between Night Flight and MTV was MTV was always aimed towards the mainstream. Night Flight was aimed towards more of the, I don't want to say the underground, even though, I mean, there's a certain aspect of that, but more towards the art house end of music videos. But the interesting thing about Night Flight as a streaming service now today is, like I said, not only do they have those old episodes, and there's only so many of those old episodes they can play because they need the copyright for the music videos in those old, in the old aired effect that they have on society, the way science fiction is. And that's really, really this whole idea of the high and the low, I think is really what it comes down to. The, the idea of what is considered a high art or a high craft or something like that morphs. And typically it's because as youth, you have less access or even just less appreciation of the high form. You aren't seeing a lot of five and six-year-olds at operas, but you are seeing a lot of them at the movies watching The Little Mermaid. And as they grow up, they look for ways to not just get into the high, but to bring an element of what they remember. I think it ins- even though you know a lot of the stories that we hear, they're probably not true. Um, there's something inspiring about them. There's something that I think I see a lot of people, at least from our our generation and before. And it may be something that we've lost because, you know, like with social media and the internet, we have this, number one, we have access right to a lot of these artists, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, like Dave Navarro. If I want to tell him, fuck off, I can just go on Twitter and say that. I have no reason, right. no reason to do that. I just picked him at random. But, yeah. I, but I can do that. I have access to that now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that because of that, we also have all this, you know, like there's a, a lot of stand-up comedians have talked about this too, is you used to be able to go out to 
a club and as a as a famous comedian and try out new material and just totally bomb to work out your material. But now yeah. it's on YouTube that night. And right. so we lose, I think, a lot of that mythos because everything is so exposed. Yeah. Does that bum you out at all? Um no, not really. I mean, I don't I don't know if you lose it all because um with social media and, and YouTube and whatnot, like it's kind of you know, you know, there's 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 obviously pros and cons, I guess. And there's uh you you can also be broadcasting yourself like twenty four hours a day to however many thousands or millions of followers you have. So it's like yeah, you are very exposed in in that but you're also like you have like this everyone kind of has their own access cable station you know to to make it relative to <laughs> to the days where you're talking about where there was more lore around what was happening in the rock backstage or what happened at that fateful night in Seattle or something like that like maybe we do see all that i certainly i don't peruse it unless i'm like really a hard fan of something and i don't know what I am <laughs> that hard of a fan at this point. Um, but also with, with, with the social media and stuff, like I'm not going to watch like, you know, every, every single, uh, for instance, a uh, Pearl jam fan video that hits the web. But if I go on, you know, Facebook or something and everyone's posting this thing where it's like, watch this heartfelt tribute that Eddie Vedder did for this fan in Chicago or something. I might be like, Oh, well, I better check this one out. You know, <laughs> like this, this is a good one right here. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know if, you know, and in then and it works both ways too. Like they, they get that, like, you know, they get to rule the internet for one day and probably their album sales peak. If, maybe not, maybe no one buys albums, but, um, I don't know, you know, like it also, if they do something bad or say something off color or racist or slightly suggestive of anything bad in the universe, it's also going to get spun the other way. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know if the dust is ever going to settle on our new media world. <laughs> I think it all, it all moves so quickly now that we don't really have time to adjust to it. So to make a long story short, I, I don't know what to feel about all that just yet. <laughs> it's tell you, tell you what I feel about everything ending up on YouTube <laughs> all the time in some years when YouTube was the last thing and we can see it a little more objectively, I guess. It's, it's a weird thing too, because um, when you, when you look at it, like before, you know, like Van Halen bands like that, whatever, basically all they had to, all they were responsible to do was to create music and, and probably do an inordinately difficult amount of interviews. And that was it. Yeah. But now you kind of have to be your own publicist. Yeah. Def well, you, you know, or you don't really have one. I mean, there's people who definitely like, I guess, hire someone to kind of manage all their social media. I'm sure that's, that's probably big business. In fact, I think I've watched shows on the business of doing that. But yeah, it, it is true. Like everyone, you know, everyone is like their own little reality show, whether they, whether they want to be or not, you know? How do you and if you don't, if you don't participate in it, then you are, you know, you're not on your channels turned off. 
You know, people don't even have the chance to become fans. <laughs> yeah, that brings up a really good point because it does seem like there's like, there's obviously in everything, there seems to be a need for balance in all things in life. You know, there's the balance between sharing too much and, you know, like, for example, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but Casey Neistat, the YouTuber, uh, he, he did, I think, about two, two years, over two years of videos every day of his life. Um, wow. And then he kind of slowed down because I think it started, his daughter started getting older. She was like a baby. And weird things started happening where he'd get into a taxi cab and the taxi cab would ask him about his daughter. Yeah. And, you know, just these weird things where it's like, okay, I've, I've exposed myself too much. But then also yeah. there's the other side, like you just said, where, well, if you don't do it, then it's, all, you know, like you're the tree falling in the forest. Yeah. So, you know, to a degree, the, 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 the analog world is, it still obviously exists out there. And, and it's where I'd like to think most people would like to have their experience, but, you know, my own experience tells me that's not very true <laughs> these days. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. How do you find that balance? How do you, how do you figure out um, how much to post and how much not to? I don't, I don't really find that balance to be honest. I've never, I, I probably have the most calculated approach to social media right now than I ever have. And that's not saying much because I still just kind of like, am pretty erratic. Like sometimes I just, I think I'm such a riot and uh, I'll post some silly things with my roommates and, you know, some deep thoughts looking off mountains or something like that. And then other times I'll go for months and I'm just like, I don't think I'm that cool at all. And I don't want anyone to look at me. And I'm just kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'll certainly be on social media digesting everyone else's lives, but I don't want to like share anything, you know, whether that means I'm not like happy probably about whatever is going on or, um, or I just like, don't, you know, don't have the time or care. There's also these weird pockets, which I think are completely natural where you're, where you're looking at your life and what you're doing. You're going, there's nothing to share. You know, I, I go through that, especially like right now, the show is, I'm recording these while the show's on hiatus. So, yeah. you know, it's on summer break, we'll call it. And uh, I'm, most of my days are spent in my room organizing things for this season. Yeah. Not exactly something to be live streaming. <laughs> no. No, I mean, not necessarily, but, you know, it's, it depends on how much, how much value you see in marketing yourself or your businesses through, through social media. Maybe that, you know, clutch behind the scenes footage is really what's going to pique your audience's interest in the interim. <laughs> That's kind of, you know, I kind of, you reminded me of something there when, when the internet was first, like, I shouldn't say when the internet was first, because it, I don't even know when that was, to be honest. <laughs> it seems like it was trickling into our consciousness at different rates for everyone. But when we were yeah. all kind of first starting to get email addresses and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and, and I guess maybe these were vlogs too, but um, I don't think they were called that then, but people used to have those um, webcams. Yeah, and they would just kind of turn them on, and it wasn't like uh, you know, like a vlog or like a YouTube video. Now you have a purpose, and you're editing it, and you're. It was a lot more like these live things that we see on Instagram and Facebook, except 
less exciting. Now, usually people now they'll turn on the live thing because something's going on. I want you to see this artist that I'm seeing, uh, this musician I'm seeing, or I'm painting right now. Watch me paint or yeah, something like that. But these guys, uh, do you remember this? They used to just turn on the webcam and they just kind of like do stuff around the room. And then every once in a while, somebody would type them something and they'd reply to them. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember like that time. That w- I was definitely not fully sucked into the web at that point. But I remember like people were like, oh man, do you ever like go to this one website? And I just like raise an eyebrow like, that sounds horrible. <laughs> like, um, luckily, luckily, in that time frame of the internet, I did have a rock band as my anti-web, and um, I was I was way more interested in going to the studio and and practicing with the dudes than I was um, trying uh, to log on, you know, AOL with the really noisy, you know, dial-up modem in the kitchen. <laughs> At my folks' house. Yeah, I remember that I think that that like the stuff I was describing was just a little bit before I was really paying attention to the internet. There was a period of time where we would play around with AOL. AOL was kind of a weird thing for if anybody like I know there's a lot of people listening that maybe are a little too young to really remember AOL, but AOL was like it's like a browser and a chat in the same product it was it's really strange mm-hmm. and you weren't ever talking to strangers but yeah you were you were almost always talking to strangers but i have no idea how you found strangers because it was usually this just one-on-one conversation it's like text messaging a ra- random person text messaging. yeah it was very we used to it used to be like a group activity we would get drunk it's college you know we get drunk and just like find girls to talk to on aol and that was yeah. about three months. And, you you know, that's about how long those discs, the free, you know, 127 hours on those discs would last. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it used to be in hours. Yeah. And then you would, uh, when the when the free stuff ran out, you would uh, either go get another disc and create another username and find those people mm-hmm. again, or you would use the disc as a coaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of miss that. I think my... I, I I don't know if I missed that or not. I mean, it was neat that like life wasn't so governed by um, a lot of like social media uh, garbage. Um, it was neat. I like that about that time. the The internet to me at that point was annoying, and I didn't really see the point of it. And I didn't think that it was ever gonna like. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think it was ever gonna take off like it did. <laughs> um, boy, was I wrong. I thought it was just going to be like, oh, cool. We don't have to have like real encyclopedias anymore. We could just like have like encyclopedia online. All right. Well, that'll be useful. Oh, and now with those maps. Nice. The internet is actually kind of helpful, you know? And then now it's like, uh, well, that's a floodgate that's just been <laughs> blown, <laughs> blown out. I don't, I don't know many things that I do in life where like some app doesn't kind of like, you know, enhance the experience at this point. I think what I miss, that's kind of maybe what I miss about that time. It's not necessarily that I miss um, uh, chatting with random people online. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I could do that if I really wanted to. I miss the naivety of it. That everything, um, everything that was done on the internet then was like the first time or you know, nobody knew what it was. It was, it was very nebulous. Mm-hmm. 
people were just testing things out and it, it didn't really matter. Now everything feels so calculated, you know, like how many, I, I could go on to Google right now and find out uh, maybe how, if I can find maybe 50 articles that'll tell me how to curate the perfect Instagram feed, you know, make sure that you have the same color scheme. They're all going to tell me the same thing because everything is so, I guess I'll go back to the word calculated again. Yeah. It's, it's been the, it's been explored. So now we're quantitizing yeah. it. And that, that takes the fun out of it for me, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I say that, but I'm, I'm sitting here, I just downloaded this, you know, this audio conferencing app to, <laughs> to have this discussion with you. I'm like, yeah, you know, the internet sucks, dude. Um, but you know, God forbid. And it's something that I've just been, it's been driving me nuts. This, this part of my computer is messy and it's driving me crazy. And I happen to listen to a podcast and maybe two sentences, three sentences, somebody says something like, oh, you know, all I do is I throw them in a folder and I name it this. And that little nudge, it, it might even, not, what they do might not even be the answer, but it's just a nudge forward over this line that I couldn't seem to get past in my thought. And I hear what they say and I go, that, no, that's not going to work. You should do it like this. And then I go, oh, that's what I should do. That's what I mean by you never know. Because that's the, the extraordinary thing about human beings. It's also the most frustrating thing about human beings. We're all so damn different. So what I foresee for now, I always say for now, not because of hedging, but because, yes, I believe in experimenting. But for now... This feels right. And the stuff that I'm writing during the week, it's going to bleed into here. This doesn't need to be like some plug. Like, please, um, by the way, this week I wrote an article about counting jelly beans. You can read that article. I hate that. But it's going to bleed in here. Because those are the things that are on my mind. And what's neat about that is the way they bleed in. Maybe somebody wants to know more about that and they go read it. Or somebody reads it and they listen to this audio and they go, why didn't you say that in the article? Well, because I didn't think about it when I wrote, <laughs> when I wrote the blog. They work together because it's organic, it's natural, it's human. It's not packaged perfectly. That's why, you know, something I haven't said before, why I named the show It Matters But It Doesn't. I like that contradiction. It matters, but it doesn't. They contradict each other, but they don't contradict each other. They're both true. Some things are important and at the same time, completely unimportant. That is the condition of life. I'm starting to get into a weird philosophical zone here. <laughs> when I start these overarching things about life, then I think I'm winding down. Mm. I did want to mention something real quick about the jogging thing. I experienced something very interesting earlier. In the jogging blog that I put up, I talked about this, the hardest part about getting in shape in, into jogging shape for me is getting over the association with anxiety and an accelerated heart rate. Because every time I had a panic attack before, that's what it felt like. 
it felt like when you're exercising. So earlier, I was when I was doing this messy moving around of all this stuff that's been screwed up on the back end of the podcast, there was times when I'd have to move a file because to without getting into the nitty gritty in order to post the episodes of Random Badassery on a separate thing, I have to do it manually. So I'm manually posting like 120 or 130 something episodes. When you drop those in, it takes like 10 minutes to upload. So I drop them in and instead of staying at the computer, I figured I'll get up and I'll just, you know, I've got this kettlebell. I'll do some stuff. I'll do some jumping jacks. And I got to a point where I pushed myself a little bit, the exercising where my heart rate was really, I was at peak heart rate, which is very uncomfortable for me. And I sat down and I'm like, okay. And I started getting into the, okay, we can weather this storm mindset. And then like, boom, boom, boom. And I could feel my heart rate just boom, 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 dropping back down because I've been exercising a little bit more. So my, uh, what do they call that? Recovery? Yeah. My recovery is better because I've been exercising more. So I didn't, I brought my heart rate up, but I wasn't like running for an hour or something like that. I was just doing some short exercises. So my body got to a certain point and was like, okay, let's go back down. And I had to, I had this weird experience when that happened. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, that's working the way it's supposed to. Because for so many years, whenever my heart rate would accelerate, it would stay that way for like an hour. You know, like not to say that like if I got to like 140, it would stay at 140. But if I got to 140, it would stay at about 110 for like an hour. So I got used to this feeling of like once the engine started, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to suffer for like an hour and here i was in that situation and doom, doom, doom. and i mean like within less than a minute i just went slowly back down so that was neat hopefully i can experience that more and more because it's resetting that associative pathway in my mind i'll tell you anxiety is a bitch and if you've never experienced uh extreme anxiety you're lucky and you should you should be glad. You're not missing anything. Except for pain. And on that cheery note, I think uh I think we're good. It's gonna be this. This is what it's gonna be. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. You guys are probably tired of hearing me. I don't have one of those fancy sign-off catchphrases. Mine's just like goodbye. See you later. This is the podcast version of It Matters But It Doesn't. You can also read my blog at itmattersbutitdoesn't.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast because you find some sort of value in it, then you can find a link in the description of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you when I see you. you know, or a different musical situation. Because when I picked up guitar, it still felt like this weird commercial (laughs) or something instrument that I had built it up to be. And it was not fun. It was not romantic or inspiring to me. Um, But when I started playing piano, uh, you know, just doing everything I could to 
feel like I can play piano. It just, I was just kind of ignited, you know, and it felt really good. I think like, yeah, it's like falling in love again. You know, you're like, dang, like I really want to go play music today. That's all I want to do right now. And to like have that feeling after not having that feeling for, you know, a couple years or more is definitely a magical feeling. It's definitely like a reaffirming feeling that like, oh, this isn't just like getting older where like nothing means anything to me anymore. <laughs> it's like, there's this new, cool, fresh, inspiring thing in my life. And it's this instrument that I super do not know how to play. <laughs> and uh, yeah, does that in long, like, that's what I could relate to, like with the naivety thing, you know, like, how do you, how do you harness that? I think you just maybe hurl yourself in the situations that they don't have to be scary, but like, um, I think that's how you keep it. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta stoke it like a fire. And you know, if it goes out, you're going to start over, I guess, you know, speaking of starting over when you walked away, what was that like for you? I mean, like, did it, was it a, a difficult experience for you to walk away from music after investing so much into it? Um, totally. Yeah. It was very sad. It was very depressing for me. And I felt like I failed. Um, but also like I was just looking at the numbers and I was looking at my physical health and my mental health. And I was like seeing, you know, I'd be touring and I was just like not making enough money to pay my bills or keep, keep my own place. And I was also just getting really depressed and it wasn't like, the kind of cool depression where you're like kind of depressed and you just like write a bunch of songs about it and then you're pumped again. Like it was like a serious depression where I was like, I hate my life. This kind of sucks. But everyone tells me I'm doing the right thing by like following my heart. And, um, which is tricky. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, it was sad. And I just kind of like, but I just kind of made a deal with myself because I was in the kind of, I was feeling pretty distraught and I was like, I don't know if I should quit or whatever, but I also just had all this artwork and all these jobs where like I was going broke doing music, even though like the band was as far as social media was concerned, was doing great. Um, but in reality, my email was just filling up with people saying like, Hey, can you come paint this sign? Can you do this design? Can you help us like, do all the interior design for this whole restaurant. Like we have a big project. Like I had all these big projects lined up that were ready to pay me like real, like, you know, adult money. And I just kind of made a deal with myself. I said, you know, why don't we just try taking a break from like touring and making albums and stuff for uh, a calendar year from right now. And let's just focus 100% on doing all these art projects and let's just like see how we feel. <laughs> and I think I was probably only like,